evening. Um, let's, uh, as Alan said earlier on, we're taking a, a, a kind of a break from uh, the, the uh, series and numbers that we're doing at the moment, but we're still going to be in numbers and we're still going to be around the Old Testament because kind of the, one of the things that we're doing tonight is thinking about how all these strange things we read about in, in the book of Numbers and the Old Testament gener- more generally fit in with what we believe about Christ and what we believe about the Gospels. So we're going to try and bring those things together. So let's uh, pray as we try and do that. Father God, we thank you that you are here with us. Uh, We thank you for your words. We thank you for the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. And we praise you and thank you that you speak to us, even today, in 2012, by your Spirit, through your word. Do that now, tonight, I pray. Amen. So a little bit different tonight. I'm going to start with a letter. In the summer of 1865, uh, Jordan Anderson, who was a former slave and now living in Ohio as a free man, dictated a letter to his former master, the Colonel P.H. Anderson, who lived in Tennessee. Apparently, Colonel Anderson had written to Jordan asking him to come back and work for him in Tennessee. And Jordan's reply, which uh, I'm going to read in a moment, is impressively measured in its ironic response to his former master. It was printed in the 1865 edition of the New York Daily Tribune. Here's an edited version. So, Dayton, Ohio, August 7th, 1865. To my older master, Colonel P.H. Anderson, Big Spring, Tennessee. Sir, I got your letter and was glad to find that you had not forgotten Jordan and that you wanted me to come back and live with you again, promising to do better for me than anybody else can. I've often felt uneasy about you. I thought the Yankees would have hung you long before this for harboring the rebels they found at your house. Although you shot at me twice before I left you, I did not want to hear of your being hurt, and I'm glad you are still living. It would do me good to go back to dear old home again and see Miss Mary and Miss Martha and Alan and Esther, Green and Lee, give my love to them all and tell them I hope we will meet in a better world if not in this. I would have come back to see you earlier, but somebody told me that Henry intended to shoot me if he ever got the chance. I want to know particularly what the good chance is you propose to give me. I'm doing quite well here. I've got $25 a month for victuals and clothing, have a comfortable home for Mandy. The folks call her Mrs. Anderson. And the children, Millie, Jane and Grundy, go to school and are learning well. Mandy says she would be afraid to go back without some proof that you're disposed to treat us justly and kindly. And we've concluded to test your sincerity by asking you to send, in, send us our wages for the time we served you. This will make us forget and forgive old scores and rely on your justice and friendship in the future. I served you faithfully for 32 years and Mandy 20 years. At $25 a month for me and $2 a week for Mandy, our earnings would amount to $11,680. Add to this the interest for the time our wages are being kept back and deduct what you paid for our clothing and three doctor's visits to me and pulling a two for Mandy and the balance will show what injustice we are entitled to. Please send the money by Adams Express in care of V. Winters Esquire, Dayton, Ohio. If you fail to pay us for the faithful labors in the past, we can have little faith in your promises in the future. We trust the good maker has opened your eyes to the wrongs which you and your fathers have done to me and my fathers in making us toil for you for generations without recompense. Here I draw my wages every Saturday night, but in Tennessee there was never any payday for us, any more than for the horses and cows. Surely there will be a day of reckoning for those who defraud the laborer of his hire. He ends his letter saying, Say howdy to George Carter, 
and thank him for taking the pistol from you when you were shooting at me. <laughs> from your old servant, Jordan Anderson. Now, it's very quickly read, but I don't think uh, that Jordan was going to go back to Tennessee very quickly, do you? Living in Ohio, Jordan had found that he got a weekly wage, his wife was safe, his daughters were in a good school, life was looking good. The alternative was to return to a man who had never paid him a day's wages, harbored his enemies, and shot at him with a pistol. And you might well think, well, who would? Who would willingly go back to a life of slavery? Well, certainly not me. Uh, we can see what's ahead of us. We know how to make good choices, and we're certainly going to go and enjoy our freedom. No, sir, we're not going to become anybody's slave. And yet, if the Bible is to believe, that's exactly what we do. So here we are in the middle of the, the book of Numbers, uh, a relatively obscure book of the Old, Test- Old Testament, and what we've got is the Israelites traipsing through the desert on their way to the Promised Land. And what they're looking forward to is freedom, It's their Ohio, if you like. Well, not Ohio exactly, but the land of Canaan, which God had promised to them as their permanent home. And there, they would enjoy the freedom to form a model society by following God's laws. They'd have the security of having their own land, where they could live in peace, plant their crops, settle down, have children, and put down their roots. And in chapter 13 of Numbers, the Israelites send out some spies to the land of Canaan, as you probably know, to have a peek at what they might expect to find. And in 13, verse 27, uh, it says, They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. To a nomadic people living in the desert, this must have seemed just like heaven. Heaven was being dangled before their eyes, as it were. Um, And at funerals, which I'm getting used to attending uh, reasonably often, uh, people often say, Well, they're in a better place now. See, whether they believe in God or not, people think it is a comfort to dangle heaven in front of our eyes. Of course, it's only natural. People do want their husband or or their granny to be in a better place now. But in other words, they're saying it's a place that is better than God's earth, where we live now. It's almost like an acknowledgement that despite the wonder and the beauty and the happiness when all things are going well in our lives, this world is actually quite a messed up place. Like Israelites, people dream of a place flowing with milk and honey instead of the desert where they're currently standing. And it wasn't meant to be like that, was it? When God created this world, at the first At the end of the first and second day of creation, he sat down in the evening and he felt pretty chuffed with himself at everything he had done. By the end of the third day, and please don't get hung up on the days here, we're not talking science here, but just uh, go with the story. By the end of the third day, he fell down into his armchair and he said, this is good. He had created the living living creatures and the birds and the fish, and they were all good. And he said, go off and make more of yourselves. And then he got around to creating man, people. And do you know what he said about us as he relaxed with a mug of cocoa that evening? He said, this is very good. Not just good, but very good. He said about people like you and me, he said, we are very good. And then because he likes us so much, he proceeds to enjoy our company in the garden that he had given us. And for our part, humanity in the form of Adam and Eve 
took full advantage of that desire that we all have within us to actually enjoy God, enjoy his presence, and enjoy the generosity of everything that he's given us. That is, until it all went horribly wrong. And somebody said in the garden, no need to mention who, somebody said, enough of this. I want to make my own decisions, choose my own destiny. I want to find out for myself what's good and evil. Here, try some of this fruit, it looks great. So we might well say when somebody dies, well, he or she is in a better place now. But there was a time when people had a kind of heaven on earth. In fact, we could all say on behalf of mankind, we were in a better place once. But unfortunately, we chose to give it up. Why? Because we wanted to make our own decisions. And actually, what we created for ourselves by doing that was a special kind of slavery, where we seek our true value and worth not in God's, but in something other than God's. For example, in the love of another person, or in the amount of money that we can earn or just spend, or in the way that I'm going to fight for things that are wrong in this country, or whatever it is. And it's a slavery which ends up having this very mysterious pull over our lives. And that, of course, is what we're seeing to, happening to the Israelites in the book of Numbers. They've been redeemed by God. They're heading to heaven, their promised land full of milk and honey. They're coming from their very own Tennessee, that is Egypt, of course. And their slave master is not Colonel Anderson, but it's Pharaoh. And it wasn't good being a slave to Pharaoh. We might just want to flick back and have a look at that in Exodus chapter 5, which is on page uh, 62. Just read you a little bit of chapter 5 there, just to give you a flavor of what it's like. So there they are, slaves in Egypt making bricks for Pharaoh. And in verse 10 of chapter 5, the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foreman appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servant this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told to make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy. That's what you are, lazy. It wasn't good. Ever-increasing hard work, no pay, insults. If the Egyptians had had pistols, they'd be firing them at them too. Then, as we know, God approached Moses in the burning bush and said, Moses, I'm going to get you all out of there. He sends the plagues and the funny signs. The first Passover, and God redeems his people out of slavery. Pharaoh relents. They cross the Red Sea. And then God meets them at Mount Sinai and They received the law and God's promise to go with them on their journey to the promised land. And that's where we caught up with them a few weeks ago in the uh, beginning of the book of Numbers. God was telling them to get organized for this trip. Count yourselves, organize yourselves, get the tabernacle ready, make some trumpets. And all this is about one year later. And God says, follow me. And they do, as we heard a few weeks ago. They follow him, obeying his every command. When the crowd lifts, they get up and march. When the clouds settle, they make their camp and they wait. And they do this for, well, I don't know, 
few days. And then they start grumbling. I don't know about you, but this manna tastes a little dry today. What do you think? Do you think this cloud really knows where it's going? I'm sure we passed that bush a week ago. Do you remember those melons we had back in Egypt? They were good, weren't they? You know, they say Syrian melons are good, but for my taste, Egyptian melons are the best. Don't you agree? What could possibly have gone wrong? God had set them free. God was personally present with them, leading them through the deserts. The journey should have taken them no more than a few months, and yet, as we know, it took them 40 years. Why was that? Why? Because they were, although they're heading towards save, uh, heaven, all they could think about was returning to their own personal hell of slavery from whence they'd come. They wanted to go back. They had God in a cloud walking before them, but they wanted to make their own decisions. They'd been promised a land where they could live in peace under God's rule, but they wanted a land of their own where they could live under their own rules. C.S. Lewis, in his book called The Great Divorce, describes a busload of people on day release from hell. Hell is depicted as this grey, lifeless town where nothing ever happens. I'm not going to make any suggestions. And they go in their bus and they come to the foothills of heaven, which is depicted in a much more vibrant colour, where everything seems so much more real. And there they meet guides who often take them into the hills and take them towards heaven by leaving behind their sins that have trapped them in hell. But instead of following their guides, the people on the bus get down to something they're very used to doing. They grumble. They say, but I, but I'm, I'm, I need to make myself more attractive to this person. If I just do this with my hair or have that up or make myself more available, then I'm sure they're going to come around. Just, just give me more time. Or they say, oh, I know I've reached my credit card limit, but there's, there's always more banks out there offering to lend me money. And if only I had a new BMW like my mates, only a little bit better. Or this country has gone mad. They let all these people in and then they just live off the benefits. It makes me feel so angry. And one by one, all of them decide to return to the dull grey town, which is just like the life that they lived back on earth. And Lewis writes, Hell, it begins with a grumbling mood, and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps even criticising it. You can repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticise the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. You see, people enslave themselves in the desire to be loved at any cost, the need to own the best at any price, or an anger that becomes uncontrollable such that even your friends start to drop away and make excuses when you suggest meeting up. Likewise, the Israelites chose to grumble against God, and eventually they couldn't stop. They were in no mood to make any further sacrifices to God. And when the spies came back and said in chapter 13, the people who live in the land of Canaan are very powerful, the cities are fortified and very large, of course, they decided to ignore God and choose their own destiny. C.S. Lewis concludes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, 
and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And hell becomes, in Lewis's words, the greatest monument to human freedom. The book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 21 to 25, tells us that we were built to live for God supremely, but instead we live for a love, for work, achievement, or anything that gives us meaning and worth. These things tend to enslave us, perhaps with guilt if we fail to attain, attain them, or anger if somebody tries to keep us from them, or fear if we have them but they are threatened, or drivenless since we must have them at all costs. Guilt, anger, fear, drivenness are all things that destroy us and enslave us, as Romans 6 makes clear. But does it really matter? Does it really matter if we become enslaved on this earth? In the film Gladiator, Russell Crowe's uh, character declares, the things that we do echo in eternity. Is that true? Well, the tragedy in the book of Numbers is that the Israelites keep looking back, even though they have the best guide of all on their way to the promised land. God himself lived with them in this tabernacle, a temporary dwelling place for God. And the smoke that surrounded the presence of God guided them by day and his fire by night. And yet the main message of this tabernacle and the temple that came after it was that God is holy and God cannot be approached directly by the people. You see, the Ten Commandments were kept right there at the heart of the tabernacle, inside the Ark of the Covenants, within the Holy of Holies. And no one can approach God because no one can keep the law perfectly. No one can keep those commandments perfectly. So no one is allowed to approach God in the Holy of Holies. In fact, the tabernacle itself looks a bit like an obstacle course. It's separate. The Holy of Holies is separated, as you saw from the diagram earlier on, from the holy place by a thick curtain and could only be entered by the high priest once a year and only after he had made significant sacrifices and ceremonial washings for his own sin. The message, in effect, is stark. It says, God is holy, proceed with extreme caution. It's even been compared to Harry Potter and the Philosopher's philosopher's Stone. Uh, Even if you get past Fluffy, the monster three-headed dog, you've still got to avoid the deadly potions and not be killed by the living chess pieces who will smash you down at any moment if you make a false move. And people ask, well, what's the point of that? Why does God's holiness matter so much? Surely loving God doesn't want to keep everybody out like that. If God is love, why doesn't he just, uh, why does, why doesn't he just let everybody in? Why, as Jesus says, you know, we should turn the other cheek. We should pray for one's enemy. He broke down the barriers between people. Why, why would we want to separate us again? Surely God is in the forgiving business. We sin, God forgives. Isn't that the deal? Well, that's uh, not necessarily what we want. And here I'm hoping that we're going to get a, a clip on the screen. Looking at Thomas. Talking about police needing your help catching three suspects involved in a violent and deadly robbery. The victim, a young man who ran to help his grandfather. KTLA's Jennifer Gould is live in North Hollywood where she actually spoke to the family a little bit earlier this morning. Jennifer. 
Yes, Megan, uh, you saw that first on five. And right now we're on the 8,000 block of Coldwater Canyon right next to Willard. And the family says they are absolutely broken over this tragedy. And they and the police are desperately asking for your help in order for that family to seek some sort of justice. It's hard. Marta Flores in tears and in shock over the senseless murder of her nephew, 24-year-old Danilo Estuardo Morales, Monday night. It was about 6.45 p.m. when her dad, 68-year-old Manuel Flores, returned home from the market. He pulled into the driveway at the back of the home where he'd lived for 16 years when three suspects came out of nowhere. They pulled my dad to the side and they told him not to say anything and they stole his wallet, his jewelry, and then they ran out and they shot at my dad, but my dad threw himself on the floor and the gunshot went through the wall. Marta and Danilo then heard screams for help and ran outside. Danilo ran after the three suspects who then jumped into their car. He was able to reach the truck and he broke the window with his fist and when he broke the window that's when they shot him right on the forehead. Danilo was rushed to Holy Cross Hospital, where he later died. And now this family left shattered and distraught over this tragic loss and pray for justice. How can I have to do this? You know, it took somebody innocent. Didn't deserve to go this way. And, you know, I hope they catch him. Unfortunately, police say they have very little to go on. Thanks. You, uh, it's diff a bit difficult to understand, but you got the picture there, uh, Marta Flores there uh, in Hollywood. Her 24-year-old nephew had rushed outside, been shot by these three men who were trying to rob uh, his grandfather, her dad, um, in the driveway of their home. And you heard her there say, uh, how could they do this? How could they shoot this innocent man? I just want them to get caught. I want justice. There's a deep yearning in our heart for justice, isn't there? Martha doesn't want to meet her brothers, her, her nephew's killers in heaven, does she? Of course not. We can all understand that, can't we? She wants justice. And it's a shame there, the last comment there, the police have so little go on. None of us would want to meet Hitler in heaven, would we, or Mussolini? Mussolini, yeah, he's got a nice little mansion at the back. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, yes, he's still in a bit of a grump because he's been given a house with a lovely view of God's throne. But that's what we would expect, precisely, if God was simply in the forgiving business and wasn't too concerned about justice. In the end, you see, the heaven would be open to everybody. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, it's just that kind of view is simply a manifesto that hell should be allowed to have a veto on heaven. Okay, so maybe we, we don't want that. So maybe it's just the good people who can find God. The bad people do not. But what does that mean exactly? Where do we draw the line? Woody Allen made a film once called Crimes and Misdemeanors. Of course, he was taking the title from um, uh, Crime and Punishment by Doskoreski, if that's how you say it. But he was trying to say, crime and punishment, it's not important. This is just crimes and misdemeanors. There's no judgment at the end. Nobody should feel guilty about what they do. It's just random collection of atoms. There's no such thing as justice 
It's just all misdemeanors. Do we mean that? Are the things that we do just misdemeanors? Or when we say that good people find God, bad people don't, do we just mean that uh, it's people like us? People like us who are going to get to heaven. Well, the tabernacle teaches us that we need to take God's holiness utterly seriously. See, God has to be true to himself, doesn't he? He has to be true to his just character. He has to remain totally separate from any wrongdoing. That's the only way he can hold, uh, uphold justice and righteous rule in the universe. That's the only way that justice can be done for Matra Flores, all the victims of Hitler. Well, it's the only way we, we can get justice uh, for that tenant who trashed our house and never paid the rent, or for the, the boss who's denied you promotion again and again because the other guy was always more willing to go down the pub after work with him. If God is not filled with wrath and righteous indignation at these things, then how can he possibly be good and holy and just? And how could the world possibly hold together as a good and holy and just place to live? Guy Hoen, who was the former director of the UN Genocide Investigation in Rwanda, uh, said this, he said, Standing in my boots, deep in the reeking muck of a random mass grave, where thousands of innocent people have been horribly slaughtered, I have no words, no meaning, no life, no hope, if there is not a God of history and time who is absolutely furious, absolutely burning with anger towards those who took it in their own hands to commit such acts. I think we'd agree with him, wouldn't we? God's holiness and justice matters. Sin is a rejection of God and his rule. And it's the cause of all the desperate misery in this world. And no sinners should be allowed to spoil heaven. But quickly and finally, that's not all the tabernacle is all about, is it? You see, we tend to look at the tabernacle as we saw that diagram. And in fact, the diagram didn't include the courtyard that goes all the way around uh, that tent that you saw there in the diagram. We tend to think of it from the outside going in, as we would tend to try and approach God. But when God described it in Exodus, uh, both places in Exodus, and in Exodus 40 we had read, he looks at it from his perspective. He begins from the inside and works out. He begins with his dwelling place, the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is topped by something called the mercy seat, or God's throne. As I said, the high priest can only enter there once a year to sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed lamb, to make atonement between sinners and God. But every day, God moved out from that place to meet people in the courtyard, at the altar of the burnt offering, where the people made the sacrifices for their sins. God and his mercy came to live amongst them in the Holy of Holies. But every day, using the vehicle of animal sacrifice, he would come out and meet his people in the courtyard where they were in order to give them total forgiveness. But their sacrifices were relentless. They had to be done every day. They had to be repeated again and again. But the tabernacle points us to a much better experience of God. In John 1 and 14, the famous verse, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, literally meaning tabernacles. He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 
It also points us to a far greater sacrifice which would serve for all time and never have to be repeated. When Jesus himself is nailed to the cross, in John 19, Jesus says, I am thirsty. They pass them some white wine vinegar, some wine vinegar soaked in a sponge, and they lift at Jesus' lips. He needed the water because his, he's lost so much blood that he needed to drink. His tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth. Refreshed after taking the drink, he is able to call out in what Mark calls a loud cry. He says, it is finished. One word in Greek, tetelestai, it is finished. Not I am finished, as in I'm all done in, but it is finished. It's what a builder would say when they finally finish a building. Tetelestai, it is finished. It's what a general would shout when the enemy is running away. Tetelestai, it is finished. It's a word that I use at 6 o'clock this evening when I finally finish the sermon. Tetelestai, it is finished. Jesus gives the cry of victory. Tetelestai, the work that God sent me to do is finished. The scriptures are fulfilled. I have done my job. I have paid for their sin. They are forgiven. They have been set free from their slavery. They have moved from Tennessee to Ohio. In Philippians 2, Paul says of Jesus, who being in very nature God's, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus made himself a servant. God himself, in Jesus, made himself a slave so that we do not have to be enslaved anymore. So we have the choice to leave our self-imposed eternal skid row towards hell and get back on that road to heaven. That's true mercy. God not giving us the punishment we do deserve, but true grace is God giving us the rewards that we do not deserve because he's paid the price in his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. Let's pray. Lord God, tonight we just want to thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus because he does not leave us on our own self-imposed road back to hell. He does not leave us enslaved to sin. But he came and he dwelt among us. He became a human being living among us like, an, like one, of, one of us here tonight. Not only that, but he came himself, the sacrifice, the one and the one eternal sacrifice that we might be forgiven, that we might be able to return to you, that we might be freed again from our slavery, that we might know your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, help us to take that for ourselves. Help us to put our faith and trust in Jesus and give, us, give our all to him. In the name of Christ. Amen.